Good morning to you. Uh, um, for those of you in a couple weeks when we will not be here yet again, uh, if you don't have a car, this is your reminder to befriend those that do. So just ask them to pick you up right at the top of the metro and off you go. So that'll be an easy way. So find those that have cars and it'll make things a little easier on you. Uh, my name is Nathan Knight. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. Uh, it's my joy to open up God's word to you. We're going to be here in Zechariah chapter 13. Only a couple sermons left today. Next week we'll be done with the book of Zechariah. And so let me pray for us in advance of uh, hearing from the Lord from his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word and we ask for the glory of Christ and the good of your people that you would work in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would cut away idols. You would bring us to the fountain of Christ that we might be cleansed. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So what is wrong with the world? It's a big question, right? What's wrong with the world? So if you had to give an answer, what would your answer be? What's wrong with? With the world. Uh, So there's a few ways that you can answer that question. Um, And based on your answer to that question, that's going to determine a lot of what it is you are joyful about and what a lot of the things that you are not joyful about. Uh, Based upon your answer, you're going to know what it is you're going to hope in and what it is you're going to be fearful of, what it is you're going to love, what it is you're going to hate. What is wrong with the world? Now, it bears mentioning that question presumes uh, something, doesn't it? Something that nobody else despises or nobody else uh, disputes, that is. Uh, We all recognize that there's something wrong with the world. Nobody disputes that. The question is, what is it? And once we know what that might be, then we begin to when we could begin to see some change. Author, pastor, the late Eugene Patterson, uh, Peterson writes, if what is wrong is a matter of our minds or our bodies, then we can do something about what is wrong by applying ourselves to education or medicine without ever having to deal with God. Schools and hospitals, I would add government, have replaced churches as the dominant locations for taking care of what is wrong with us. He says, yet with all of our wonderful schools and amazing hospitals, people don't seem to have gotten any better. They are more learned, they are healthier, but their lives have, if anything, deteriorated. Well-educated and well-doctored, they divorce one another at an alarming rate, use drugs with mind-boggling frequency, and spend their money and time in the pursuit of trivialities that astound the angels, he says. He goes on to say there is apparently something wrong with us that the professors and physicians are helpless in doing anything about. And here's his answer. And that something is sin. Sin, he says, is not what's wrong with our minds. It's the catastrophic disorder in which we find ourselves at odds with God. He goes on to say that we keep looking for ways to improve our lives without dealing with God, but we cannot do it. Unquote. Friends, this is a fitting introduction to Zechariah chapter 13, where Zechariah is going to come to the same conclusion. And of course, it's coming to that conclusion since that's where Peterson found it. Right. Zechariah has been orienting us towards this coming day. This coming age, as it were, where sin will be dealt with and has been dealt with. Zechariah is writing to recently returned Jewish exiles that have been in exile for some 70 years because of their sin. They've come back. He's writing in that period when they're coming back into Jerusalem, into Judah. uh, And he's writing in advance of Christ's coming. Christ has not yet showed up at this point of the writing. And the emphasis or the message of Zechariah's book is about this coming king. 
this coming king that's going to come uh, and with him, he is going to bring salvation and with him, he will also bring judgment. He'll bring salvation and bring with him judgment. And we've seen as we've walked through Zechariah, how frequently Zechariah is being quoted and finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the coming of him. And that's going to continue today as we pick up our passage in Zechariah 13, as I read. On that day, there will be a there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. And on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say the wounds I received in the house, the, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver. And test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people And they will say the Lord is my God. Now, this passage we know is building off of what we've seen in Zechariah chapter 12. Remember last week, these should be understood as a kind of unit. They're building off of each other. And it's building off those themes that we saw in chapter 12 of last week. And in particular, that theme that we saw in 1210, chapter 12, verse 10, where we see that uh, there will be those that will look upon the Lord and pierce him. And surprisingly, as we saw, the people that were seen to see the Lord and then pierce him was not ultimately his enemies, but it was his own people. It was us that pierced him. And remember, as we consider that the Lord would also promise to pour out a spirit of grace and mercy on those of us that see that and mourn, lamenting that it was our sin that led to Christ that put him up there on the cross. But we also remembered that it was by those wounds that we are healed. Which is why Jesus said himself in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning for their sin. Now this gets all made, this all gets even more clear as we move into chapter 13. So take a look at verse 1 there, chapter 13. It says there, on that day, that's the same day as the piercing, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin, two things, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Now, that word fountain there should be understood to be a kind of metaphor, a metaphor, uh, a fountain being a metaphor. In other words, it's sort of meant to mean a wellspring, a wellspring of life, as it were. You can imagine a fountain that's tied to the Atlantic Ocean, wherein you go to that fountain day after day and you pump water day after day and the water just keeps coming, 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 coming. No matter how many times you pump it, water comes out and you're able to cleanse that thing. That's the idea that's going on here. So it is on the day of piercing. 
There shall be a fountain of grace open for God's people to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And how, you ask, does that fountain cleanse God's people? How does the fountain work, as it were? We've seen this all the way through Zechariah, but you can remember way back to Zechariah chapter 3, where we saw that the Lord would take away sin in a single day by the branch. And we know that branch to be Jesus Christ, as is evidenced by the piercing of Jesus on the cross, again prophesied there in chapter 12, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. It is there on the cross where Jesus was pierced, that he took away sin for his people on a single day. Jesus having atoned or paid for sin with his uniquely innocent blood. Which explains why Jesus says that he would can't, he has come to pay, uh, give his life as a ransom for many. He came, as it were, to be a substitute for sinners that believe. His death became the wrath quenching death for all that believe, satisfying God's punishment for their sin. And he did it in love. We can even see that in this passage in chapter 13. I wonder if you caught it as we read it through. Did you see it? Look at verse seven. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So we've seen from Zechariah 11 that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? That it was going to be rejected for 30 silver pieces. You remember that from a couple weeks ago. We know that he was the good shepherd. He called himself, Jesus did, the good shepherd. We know from John 10 that he called himself the good shepherd that was willing to lay his life down for the sheep. The Lord of hosts, we see in verse 7, struck him, the shepherd. Which reminds us of Isaiah 53, where it says in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, he will be a fountain of grace for having been crushed or struck by the Lord. And that language of sacrifice goes back even before Isaiah to the sacrificial system right, that the Lord instituted there in Israel, in Leviticus. We remember there on the Day of Atonement that a goat would be brought to represent Israel. And the goat was killed, the blood would flow as a way to atone symbolically the, for the sins of Israel. And so that day, in, uh, that day that it was prophesied, in that sacrificial system from Leviticus 4, that day pointed to Isaiah 53, It was prophesied of this one that was going to be struck. And Isaiah 53 points to Zechariah 13. And Zechariah 13 points to Christ. That fulfills all of it. Where Christ Jesus comes in and dies and lays his life down. He's the one that is struck to atone for sins. For all those that believe. He then, Jesus, becomes the fountain. That cleanses us from all of our sin. Let me throw a New Testament verse on this. Just to make it clear, 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So everything was and is pointing to Jesus, to His ministry. He is the fountain that cleanses us. Christ was struck by the Lord of hosts so that we who believe would not have to be struck by the Lord ourselves for our sin. Now, if all of this is not enough, we know that this passage points to Jesus because Matthew and Mark both quote this exact verse, 13.7, in their Gospels. 
Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was struck by the Lord of hosts so that we, 13.1, would be cleansed from sin and uncleanness. Beloved, you should know that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Our own personal religious sacrifices, be they church attendance, financial giving, giving or good deeds to the poor, those cannot save us. Those things cannot clean us. Christ is the only one that can strike at the root of our problems and bring us healing. And so to reject his sacrifice, is to then reject the Lord's provision for our deepest problem, for our sin, for our rebellion. Which, by the way, is exactly why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man come to the Father but through me, through my atoning sacrifice for sin. He's the only one that can. Nothing else and no one else can do it. This cross where Jesus atones for sin, we're reminded again from 1210 last week, was where I, Nathan Knight, pierced him specifically. But by God's amazing grace, again, those wounds healed me. By grace, through faith in Christ alone, I am justified. All those that trust Him are justified, counted innocent, even though I am guilty. Because He stood in my place and paid my debt and cleansed me from sin in a single day. And He did it all, beloved, in love. Did it all in love. Now let me pause here for a moment because I recognize this notion of the Lord striking His Son. Maybe it's odd for some of you. Maybe it seems a bit harsh by God to do that to His Son. Just three brief things, if that describes you. First, it's important to note that as you consider that notion, it's important to note that the Lord is one. The Lord is one, which means that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Spirit is in the Son. Therefore, when the Father struck the Son, He struck Himself. He struck Himself. The Lord struck Himself. Himself. And also, secondly, we see that Jesus willingly laid his life down for the sheep. He says as much again in John 10, that he lays his life down of his own accord. And thirdly, finally, consider that not only did the Lord strike himself and not only did Jesus willingly enter into suffering, but also the Lord was never obligated to do any of that. He wasn't obligated to do anything in atoning for our sin. We all deserve what was coming to us. We were enemies of God and the Lord had no obligation to enter into it. And yet, in order to rescue us from ourselves, the Lord willingly entered into pain, into suffering, into evil. And he struck himself without even being obligated to. And the reason why was because he so loved the world. Astounding. Amazing grace that Christ, the innocent, inserted himself into the story so that sinners like us might find a home in his love. And so now for the application, how is it we as Christians, how do we apply this notion of Christ being struck on our behalf, of our being cleansed from our sin as a result of our piercing him? How is it we apply this? Well, beloved, it's all of those sermons that we went through in Ephesians one to three. That's the application. That's the application. You heard it uh, read just at the beginning of the service. I can summarize the way in which we could apply this. By that one sentence. It's amazing that in the original language, one sentence, chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, one sentence. Where it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our application to Christ atoning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. As sons, as daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In Him, in Christ, the one we pierced, we have present tense active. We have redemption. How? Through His blood, through the fountain. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. That's our application. Christian, your deepest problem has found its answer in Jesus. He is who you are and you are who He is. In Christ, your debt was paid on a single day 2,000 years ago. Therefore, you are not who Hollywood says you need to be. You are not who Madison Avenue tells you you need to be. You are not who Wall Street tells you you need to be. You are not uh, who Capitol Hill tells you you need to be. You are not who your mom and dad tell you you need to be. You are not even the person you think you have to construct this image in yourself you need to be. No, you are who Christ is. And Christ is who you are. And so, beloved, rest in that reality that Christ was struck on your behalf and you're clean, you're loved, you're reconciled, and nothing and no one can ever take that away from you. Rest in that. Find joy in that reality. What great joy. Christ, your shepherd, has been struck for you and now your sins are forgiven and your identity is secure. Rest in that. Rest in that. And to you, friend, if you are not trusting in Christ alone to be struck for you. And instead, you are using Christ to get what you really want. Or you're just rejecting Christ altogether. If that describes you. Then, friend, I leave you with the words of, of Jesus in John three thirty six. Right after, by the way, those words that Jesus spoke for God so loved the world. And Jesus says in John three thirty six that if you do not trust him, hope in him alone to save you from your salvation, be changed by his grace. Jesus says there that you're going to be struck yourself. Somebody has to make the payment for sin. And if you don't trust Christ to make it for you, then you're left to pay it yourself in hell. And so I encourage you to listen to some other words of Jesus. Where Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time, the, the time of the kingdom is fulfilled. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel that you might be saved. It's the words of Christ. Friend, turn from your idols. Turn from anything other, anything, anything that you're hoping in to make you clean. Turn from that and look to Jesus alone to save you. Turn away from your rebellion against him. Trust him. Turn from those idols. Turn to Jesus. Trust him to solve your deepest problem and be changed by his grace. Be cleansed by his grace. Trust him to deal with that deepest problem and know that as you do, friend, that as you trust in Christ to atone for your sin, cleans you along with all of his people. Know that with all of his people, Christ will then cleanse by the blood of Christ all of those idols that, will, uh, that has been sort of leading you astray. God will cut those things off and clean you up even more. Know that that's what he's going to do. That's the thrust of the rest of this passage. It's a word we call sanctification. Sanctification. Cleaning. So in Christ we have justification. And in Christ, we have something separate. Those two things, by the way, are often confused. Justification separate from sanctification. That's what the rest of this passage is about. In Christ, we have justification. Justification is the moment Christ's status is applied to us that believe on that single day. When Christ, uh, the shepherd, was struck. But this changing is what occurs after this. This is this sanctification. When Christ, he 
transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then those of us that trust in him and we continue to trust in him, God cleanses us. That's sanctification. He cleanses us. That's the process where we grow up into the status of who we are. And we see that's what the rest of this passage is about. Look down there in verse two. We see the Lord is going to cut off three things for those that are having their sins uh, atoned for. He's going to cut off three things. Verse two, the names of idols. Secondly, he will remove from the land the prophets. That's clearly false prophets. And thirdly, he will remove the spirit of uncleanness. Now, a little helpful note here, that notion of cutting off the verb there. That's in an imperfect tense. You say, Nathan, why are you telling me that? It's dark. I'm already falling asleep. But listen, <laughs> this is important to know, right? This, this means, this, this points us to the reality of the fact that God is doing this. He's in the process of doing this. He saved those. He's cutting off. He's in the process of cutting off your idols. He's in the process of cutting off your false prophets. He's in the process of cutting off all of these things in your life. In the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, I believe this work of sanctification that Zechariah is pointing us to in this day, it has begun in us. And it will be completed. Sanctification will be completed on the day that Christ returns. And so let me give you... Let me give you some categories to kind of think about the ways that God is cutting off these things in our life, sanctifying us. Let me give you some categories for the three things he mentioned. You ready? Three things. So those names of idols he's going to cut off, cut off, think of those as the objects of your false worship. Think of them like that. Secondly, the prophets that he's going to cut off, think of those as the pastors of your false worship. Things that are kind of leading you to do those things. And then the third thing, that spirit of uncleanness, think of that as the effects of your false worship. That's what he's going to do. He's going to cut off those things. He's going to cut off. He's going to, he's in the process. That's what he's doing. Cutting off your objects of false worship, the pastors of that false worship, and the effects of the false worship you had. And what we see in verses 3 down to 6, that's what it looks like for this sanctification to happen, for this cutting off to happen. All right? They show in those verses what it looks like to have idols, prophets, and a spirit of uncleanness removed by the fountain of Christ. And you'll notice there in verses 3 to 6, you're going to see two things. You're going to see two things that marks or describes this process of sanctification. Two things there. You're going to see one. The first thing you'll see in verse three is this notion of rebuking false worship. And this thing, the second thing you'll see is this repentant lifestyle that results as a result of it, of being rebuked and trusting in the Lord to cleanse you. So let me go ahead and show those to you. Look at verse three. Verse three is a chilling call that tells of a mother and a father who hear of their son who is falsely prophesying. Or as it says there, speaking lies in the name of the Lord. And it says there that the mother and the father are to pierce him through because of his lies. And that word pierce there is playing off of the word pierce in 1210. Remember, these go together. It's playing off that word pierce in 1210. So after Christ receives the piercing, receives the wounds of our sin, As the Lord strikes him, he cleanses us from that sin, from that piercing. Therefore, we who have been cleansed, 13.1, move from piercing Jesus to piercing liars about Jesus. The Lord will cut off uncleanness by piercing the one that lies about Jesus. This piercing is here meant to communicate calls of rebuke. Which is why, by the way, no Christian has ever read Zechariah 13. Uh, and said, we need to go out and start stabbing people when they're lying, right? No, we understand that right? these are calls to rebuke. 
calls to rebuke. We see Jesus doing this exact same thing. You can go back and write it down and go back and read it this afternoon. Luke chapter 9, 43 to 45. Jesus does the same thing. He rebukes and uncleanness comes out and cleanness comes in. Same thing. And of course, as we think about the church, God's people, the church is called to do the same. We can think about all those verses in the New Testament that call us to rebuke, to admonish, to exhort one another by speaking the truth in love. You can think about all those verses, so many of them. That's what the Lord is doing. He's cutting off the lies. That's our responsibility by the Lord's grace to cut it off. And one evidence that I'll give you one clear evidence of the way that the Lord calls his people to pierce those that are speaking lies about it is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Restorative church discipline. Super clear. One way that he's piercing those that lie about him. So in that passage, Matthew 18, Jesus teaches that if you find one in the church that is lying about Jesus, namely by their sinning against another, Jesus says, go and confront them in their sin, rebuke them, pierce them, as it were, expose them to the reality of what they're doing is wrong. And he says, if they don't repent, if they don't turn away, if they don't change their life, Jesus says, bring two or three others and what is coming there, speak against them, pierce them, call them to repentance. And if they don't do that, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And as the church prays and calls them and pierces those liars, then therefore they're supposed to then he says, excommunicate them. Another way of saying that is cut them off. Exactly what Jesus, what the Lord says in Zechariah 13. Cut them off. Cut them off. Treat them like outsiders, Jesus would say. Gentiles, tax collectors. And Jesus says that as churches do this, they bind and loose, but they bind and loose on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, restorative church discipline is to pierce those that lie about what it means to follow Jesus, about what it means to be cleansed. You don't just trust Jesus and just live however the heck you want to live. So common in America. But that's just not the way the Scripture teaches. God is intending to pierce us, to change us, to sanctify us, bring us to the fountain. And so this is one important way that I just described that God means to cut off idolatry amongst His people that take His name. And for those that do respond to that piercing, to those rebukes, we see what results to the fountain's cleansing and a lifestyle of repentance. That's what we see in 4 and 5 and 6. We see a lifestyle. One that hears the call to rebuke, to trust in the Lord, to be cleansed. We see a lifestyle of repentance. Verse 4, we learn about this false prophet that moves from deceiving people to one that is ashamed of that deception. His repentance is complete by his taking off the garments of a prophet to no longer calling himself a prophet and instead calling himself a farmer, as it were. Killing the soil, uh, tilling the soil. In other words, this guy, verses 4, in verse 4 and 5, this guy's changed his profession. He's no longer a false prophet. Now he's put on the clothes of a farmer. Right? He's changed. He's been cleansed. He's gone to the fountain. His life is different. He's reformed. He's no longer deceiving people. He's ashamed of that lifestyle. And he's got scars to prove it. That's verse 6. He's a new man. He lives in the truth. He doesn't live in lies because the Lord has cut off and is cutting off his idolatry and the unclean, uncleanness that resulted from that idolatry. And we see that in his lifestyle of repentance. So to kind of summarize what we've seen in these first six verses of things that's going to happen in that day, our day, since Christ has atoned for sin. Summarize, the Lord atones for sin. He then cleanses sin by removing idolatry, the pastors of idolatry, the effects of idolatry. He'll do that by rebuking liars about the Lord, calling them to repentance. And repentance, when it happens, is a 180 degree turn in the other direction. They are no longer sympathetic to those lies. They're ashamed of those lies. They no longer even associate with their former trade. 
They are new people that do honest work. They're glad to go to the fountain. They're glad to be cleansed. They're glad to be reformed. They're thankful for rebuke because it brought them out of deception and into the light of the Lord's grace. So the fountain cleansed and is cleansing them each day as they get in and drink from the fountain of Christ amongst his people. And what we see in verses seven to nine is a poem. It's a kind of recapitulation of chapters 12 and 13. Uh, My old seminary professor that had a profound effect upon me, he says that uh, poems in the Old Testament are like the Disney songs in Disney movies. You can think about those, right? Uh, You know, let it go, right? When you think about, look at the lyrics of let it go, right? It's just reiterating the whole point of that movie, right? That's what these poems in the Old Testament are doing. That's exactly what this poem is doing. It's reiterating the point of 12 and 13. And you can see that right there, right through. Oh, it's meant to summarize. It's exactly what's happening. The Lord strikes the shepherd. The sheep scatter. The Lord will punish most of those. That's the two-thirds. We've heard a lot about that last week. We'll hear more about that next week in chapter 14. But then there's this third, one-third of them, that he's going to keep alive, that he's going to cleanse, that's going to give everlasting life, he says. And that's the one he's been talking to in this passage, chapter 13. The fountain of Christ's blood will cleanse them from their sin, the effects of their prolonged idolatry and uncleanness. He'll cut off idols, passage of idols, effects of idols, rebuking them, admonishing them, leading to lifestyles of repentance, lifestyles of joy, freedom in the love of Christ. And it's important to note that as this happens, we see there in verse 9, This work of cutting off, this work of cleansing is painful. He uses the language of a refiner's fire. It's painful purification. Painful work. I wonder if any of you have ever had an idol cut off and it was a really pleasant experience. Right? It's not not easy when the Lord does this in our life. We have to remember, right, that idols are things that we love more than God. So these are things that we cherish. And the Lord's trying to take those things away. So we should expect that when that happens, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. And that's what the Lord says he's doing. So I think about this as it relates to uh, our church. It is one of the most common things that Joey and I do uh, in the life of our church. One of the most common things we do is premarital counseling. A lot of guys and gals getting married in the life of our church. And one of the things we tell them at the top and all the way through is marriage is primarily about your holiness. What, guys and gals? Not primarily your happiness, right? See, they already know. We've said it so many times. Not primarily about your, ho- not primarily about your happiness. It's primarily about your holy- holiness. In other words, I think the, the, the kind of the world, what they want to do to cleanse you, to kind of make you happy, they think, right, the movie, what do they say? And then they, they met, they had all this stuff happen, and they get married, and what? They live happily ever after. Come on, man, that ain't true on none of us. Right? I've been married for 16 and a half years. Man, that ain't true. Now, they, it, was, it is true that I'm happy. That came out wrong. I love my wife. Yeah. I'm really glad to be married to you. Uh, my point is, my point, which was poorly made, is that, is that when you get married, you get two sinners that start living with each other, and it's hard. It's not like the world teaches you that everything's just going to be great. And it is great, but it's only great because you work at it. It's great because it gets hard and you work at it in the hard. 
I love Dave Harvey's book that he says in the beginning. He says, uh, when sinners, it's a book called When Sinners Say I Do. And the opening introduction says he, he walks in there and uh, uh, the book starts off with the, with the husband and the wife sitting at their uh, honeymoon. And the husband or the wife leans over to the other one and says, Psst, as they're sitting on their honeymoon and says, you married a sinner. That's what marriage is doing. It's a great picture of how God uses oftentimes, sometimes painful experiences in marriage to make us holy, to cleanse us. It's hard. It's painful work. And so I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what it is, how it is, what those idols are that the Lord is purging you from. But I do know that if you're in Christ, the Lord is cutting off idols in your life. He's cutting off ambitions. He's cutting off people. He's cutting off habits and lifestyles that keep you from the good life of his love. And it's hard. It's painful. He tells you right here that it is. That's why verse 9 reads the way that it does. Verse 9, it says, And I will put this third, that's his people, into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. So you can think about things of gold and silver, right? These are precious commodities. But beloved, if you have something like that's made of gold or silver that's really important to you and is worth a lot, you need to know that it got there. It got to be precious and valuable because it went through fire. My wife, who I love and am thankful to be married to. (laughs) Dang it. Uh, Uh. She has on her left hand a platinum ring that I bought her, you know, six or whatever it was, 17 years plus ago. And that ring is a very expensive ring. But it only got there because, again, it was purified. It went through fire. And now it sits on her left hand and it adorns her hand. It adorns it and it shines and it symbolizes I am hers and she is mine. And I love her and she loves me. But it only got there onto her hand because of the refiner's fire. That's what verse nine again is all about. That's what chapter 13 is all about. That's what the Lord, Christian, is about in your life. Refining us. He's going to put you in the fires of this broken world to refine you. If he did not do that, listen to me, if he did not do that, he would not love you. But because he loves you, he aims to cut the dross out of your life. The impurities, all the uncleanness that resulted from your following idols. So that you could then, beloved, shine like gold. So you might adorn the hand of God. It might shine that the Lord might say to the world. He is mine. She is mine. And I am his. You can see that's how verse 9 ends. But before it does, the Lord reminds us that refining fires produce pleading prayers. Don't lose sight of that. That's part of the refining work. The Lord refining His people, skimming away all of the impurities, and as those fires get hot, and while that painful process of idle deconstruction occurs, it says, they will call upon My name. We'll pray. The fires are hot. We will pray. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's prayers when it's hot. We'll, we'll pray to the Lord and we'll say something like, Lord, this hurts. This is hard. This is really difficult for me right now. I feel lonely. I feel hurt. 
I feel lost in a way. I feel weak. But Lord, I know you're doing something. You're doing something. I'm going to trust you in this. Answer me, Lord. What's happening? What's going on with this right here? What is that? I don't understand, Lord. Lord, please, just purify me. Do your work. But this is hard. And verse 9 says on the back side of those prayers, look at it. Verse 9. And I will answer you. That's a promise. I will answer you in those prayers because you're mine and I'm yours. This is what the Lord is doing in the life of his people. Christian, this is what he's doing in your life right now. This is what he's doing in the life of our our life together as a church. He's refining us because he loves us. He's cutting off idols. He's cutting off pastors of idols, effects of idols in our lives. He's bringing us to the fountain of Christ to cleanse us. He's bringing us to lifestyles of repentance to make us new men and women, not just better ones, new ones. Refined so that we would shine like the sun. He's imparting to us life everlasting, but it's hard and he knows it's hard. That's why he's given us four important gifts as a vessel of his voice to remind us that he hears us. In the fire. That's why he's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his people. And he's given us prayer. All four of those things are meant to be vessels of his voice. Reminding us of his love in that fire. Reminding us that as the fires rage and the dross of idols in our lives are removed. He's there. Those things are meant to say that he's there. He's for us. He's not against us. He's cleansing us. His his word is his voice. His spirit testifies to ours in those times. His people are his body. And prayer is that line of communication between the two of us. They're all there to be his voice, to remind us that he's doing something, that he loves us, that he's working for our good and for his glory. And so, beloved, you need to know and you need to you really sit in this. We are the one group of people on planet Earth that should understand or should at least admit that we are not surprised by trials. We should be the one group of people that just knows that trials come and we're not surprised by them. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 make this crystal. Beloved, don't lose sight of that word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here's a here's a strange piece of Christianity, right? But rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, in other words, he's saying you're sharing in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when 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 his glory is revealed. On that day, brothers and sisters, you will be glad for the fires that are burning up your idols. This this is what the Lord has been doing ever since the fall, beloved. He's reminding us that in those fires, he's purifying us. Think about Joseph, right? Joseph's prison was a step to glory. Jonah went into the belly of a fish in order to make his way to a people that needed the Lord. Right? Paul uh, would have chains and those chains would deliver him to the shores of the nations to deliver to them serious joy. And of course, the cross, how can we not forget the how could we forget the cross where the Lord uses the horror of a cross to bring Christ to everlasting glory? Thomas Watson says, 
that a physician does not study what pleases his patient. He studies the cure in order to heal the disease. Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping, brothers and sisters, may tarry for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. Do not be surprised by trials and tribulations. Just a cursory reading of the New Testament tells you that. Time and time again, they are warning us of false teaching, preparing us for suffering, but they also are regularly reminding of the day of the Christ that is coming, when He will return, when He is revealed, and our suffering will be turned into everlasting joy. Another passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so whether it is the trials and tribulations that you are enduring now, beloved, or the ones that you will endure tomorrow, know that the Lord is at work in your life. He loves you too much to let you coast to the end. He's not going to let you keep going back to that idol. Because he loves you, he's going to do what needs to be done to cleanse you and to present you blameless in the end. Guys, God is 10,000% committed to your joy. The Lord is way more committed to your joy than you are. And so he's going to do something about it. So the question is, beloved, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening to his word? Are you listening to his spirit by meditating on his word? Are you listening to the people that are calling you away from bad habits and bad people and into the light? Or are you rejecting them, thinking that those people are opposed to your joy and your freedom? And lastly, are you praying? Are you praying? Again, we see that in this passage. Can I just speak as a pastor to my church for a moment? I'm increasingly concerned about pockets of prayerlessness in our life together. I'm concerned. This does not describe everybody in the life of our church. Matter of fact, I know I think Paige and some of the girls get on together on Tuesday mornings and they just pray. That's happening in the life of our church. But there are other pockets where we see prayerlessness at work. And it concerns me. The life of our and our life together as a church. I've spoken enough to some of you to know that you're going through trials and tribulations. And I've asked you about prayer and you've said that it's just not happening much. We see in verse nine, it's supposed to be producing prayer. And I need to confess this myself. Last week, I spent well over an hour just repenting of my own, confessing my own prayerlessness. We have to pray. This is the way that God speaks to us. This is the way that He refines us. He uses prayer. The fire heats up. Refining's happening. And one of the effects of that fire on the gold and silver is to pray. They will call upon my name. Are you, are you praying in the midst of your trial? And I'm not saying just here and there. I'm asking, are you pleading? Are you fasting? Are you quantitatively and qualitatively praying? Or, or have you kept your distance from the Lord in the trial? Believing that maybe other things will bring the end. Or have you maybe complained and not brought that issue to the Lord regularly? Have you asked Him, Lord, what's happening here? And gone to have you gathered two or three people? Just Can we come together and just pray about this? Or do you loathe prayer? Think it a waste of time and energy. The Restoration Church, you ask you these series of questions. Do you want your kids to follow Jesus? Do you want to finally be done with pornography 
and remember it no more? Do you want to be deep with Christ, deep with others? Do you want to experience healing? Do you want to know and treasure Christ? Do you want to learn to hope in heaven, stop conforming to the world? Do you want to stop fighting with your spouse and learn to love them? Do you want to be more generous? Do you want to learn to be more compassionate, more thankful, more forgiving, more hopeful? Do you want to know peace and contentment? Pray. Pray. This is God's vessel for you to get those get that to that. That's part of his fountain. It's where you go to drink of the fountain. Yield to the Lord's refining fire in your life. Give up your idols and the things that feed those idols. Go to the fountain, get in the word, get involved in the life of the church and pray regularly, daily, specifically, loudly, quietly, happily, sadly. Pray. Pray. Jesus is the fountain. He has opened up a line that allows you to call upon his name. And he says he will answer you. No, he won't answer you in the timing in which you'd probably like. Or in the ways in which you might prefer. But he has promised to answer you in the fires of your sanctification. And so you must pray. And by the way, when you're praying, you've got to be willing to, to, to confess sin to God and repent when you're praying. But he'll use those prayers, beloved, to give you more space for you to say to him, verse 9, you are mine and I am yours. He sanctifies you, gives you more grace in your heart to say that, to enjoy that. The Lord's going to remind you in those prayers that he's for you. He's doing something in your life. And so go to the fountain. Be cleansed, beloved. Lean upon him in prayer. Shine as the impurities roll away. And soon enough, we will see him face to face. And all of those struggles, those trials, those tribulations will be done. And we'll be glad that we stuck with Christ, that we held fast to him as he most importantly held fast to us. We'll be glad that we did it. And friend, if you are not trusting in the Lord, I hope you see as clearly as ever. There's hope in Christ. This world is hard. You must be willing to cut away idols and trust Jesus as your chief treasure. And as you've seen, he doesn't promise you as some pastors like to tell you. Health, wealth and happiness all the time. That won't happen. Didn't happen to anybody in the Bible. It won't happen to you if you trust Jesus. But if you trust Jesus, you will go through fires and tribulation and he's doing it to cleanse you that you might know him and enjoy him forever in his people, singing his praises forever and ever. Amen. And so let's pray now. Let's pray now. Father, we confess that we follow idols. We confess they're in our lives. We confess that we have pastures of idols. We confess that there's uncleanness in our lives. But we do not trust ourselves to be clean. We trust the fountain. We trust Jesus Christ. And Lord, we even trust Christ through this prayer to do something. And Lord, we know that you're doing something. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we doubt you in the midst of these trials and tribulations. But teach us to trust you. Because you struck your son and not us. That, among anything else, allow us to trust you through these trials and tribulations. Thank you, God, that you are committed enough to our joy and to our love to bring us through these fires so that on the other side of them, we might be clean. We might be holy. We might enjoy you forever. And finally, God, so I, so I pray that we would be a church that prays. Praise for others, not just ourselves. Praise for others. Pray for other saints that are suffering around the world. 
And Lord, as we pray, sanctify us, cleanse us, make us like that one, that prophet that changed his clothes, changed his profession. And Lord, make us hopeful for the day of Christ's return. And Lord, we pray it would be soon. We ask this in his name. Amen.